Hey there, fellow entrepreneurs. If you're tired of complicated domain management, I've got the solution for you, Hover.com. Hover makes registering and managing domains a breeze. Their clean interface and hassle-free experience will save you time and frustration. No upsells, no hidden fees, just straightforward domain services. Plus, Hover offers top-notch customer support. Make your life easier. Head over to MilwaukeeMafia.com slash Hover and simplify your domain journey today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And today we're back with another story of the Mafia. Take her away, Gavin. All right. So uh, up to this point, we haven't really talked about a lot of murder, uh, I don't think. No, we have not. Okay. And we should talk about a lot of murder because I'm sh- thinking a lot of people are waiting for that. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of murder in the next uh, few episodes, so I'll make up for the lack of murder. Sorry about that. Uh, we're actually going to go back uh, in time a little bit. It's going to be a running theme, but I'm going to keep going back in time. Uh, we're going to go all the way back to 1897. That sound cool? Okay. So 1897, this is uh, actually before... Uh, this like Vito uh, Guadalabene, not in Milwaukee yet. So this is a little bit ahead of that. Um, but the Italians are coming in. They're settling in the Third Ward. So this is, you know, just around the time or just after the fire. The changing neighborhood. This is in the Third Ward. It's thrown into a state of excitement. It's a warmer than average Monday morning on July 12th, 1897. <laughs> There's a sensational volley of bullets. And soon James Sukop age 30, it's shot and on the verge of death. Would you say that as far as this could be a very, very, one of the first Italians murdered in Milwaukee? Well, yes and no. Okay. Okay. So James Sukop is not Italian. Oh, okay. So no. But that is why this story comes up because it is the first murderer involving an Italian. It's the, the shooter is Italian. Being that this is so early, is this actually mafia related or is this just an italian the shooter in this case is probably not a mafia member okay probably not this is not this specific murder was not a mafia incident we'll say that okay so james sukup is a teamster and for those who don't know what a teamster is basically it's just somebody who drives uh, goods and services around usually today it'd be a truck driver but uh, at this time of course it's a horse and buggy uh, he's hauling vegetables around. Uh, he's driving around. He's in the third ward. He's got some bananas that he just picked up from the depot. Uh, he passes by another guy who's a teamster. And this teamster already, even though it's 11 in the morning, is inside at the local saloon. He's decided he doesn't want to work. He wants to sit at the saloon. So he passes on uh, a bill lading to the uh, to the man, James Sukop, to pick up some potatoes, and this other guy goes back to drinking. James gets a second bit of work. Well, while he's driving around, four Italian men begin to jeer at him, and another one jumps out, begins throwing stones and bricks at him. Uh, Sukop fights back by uh, whipping them with his riding crop. Uh, he calls them sons of bitches. Uh, and then a, a shooting breaks out. The gunman fires four times, two of the shots, I hit Sukop in the back and in his side. Um, There's also a young boy on the wagon with him, but the young boy is not injured. Uh, Several people saw the incident, 
Zukov made it back to the store. Uh, he's bloody, you know, not uh, not in the best shape, being shot. <laughs> Until the ambulance arrived to treat his wounds, he was given brandy to drink. So that's <laughs> that's the best they could offer him. It was like, here's your first aid, here's a bottle of brandy. So while they're investigating, they find out that a few days prior to this, a different teamster got into a fight with an Italian in the Third Ward. A fight broke out then. Uh, one of the non-Italians in the fight got cut above his eye with a knife. So they were thinking that maybe even though this wasn't uh, the same guy, maybe this was like a retribution. Like, oh, we got in a fight a couple of days. We're going to get you this time. Um, you know, maybe everybody just looks the same. I don't know. It's like one guy in a buggy, same as anyone else. He got brought to the hospital. Sukop got brought to the hospital. He died around 9 p.m. Uh, one of the bullets was lodged deep in his intestines, and another one was in his spine. Uh, surgery really couldn't do a whole lot in those days. Uh, there was some debate about whether the surgeons were incompetent or, or slow to get to him. But, I mean, again, a bullet in the spine, and this is 120 years ago. I, I'm guessing there really wasn't a whole lot they could have done about that. So the police, you know, of course, they're looking for the shooter. And they're wandering around what they called the Italian colony, the Third Ward. They called it the Italian colony. Uh, this is going to be a running theme in the early days. Local Italians did not trust the police. They just did not. So when they went around asking questions, whether they knew something or not, they wouldn't they tell. They weren't going to talk. So, you know, that's just how dedicated and uh, focused they were on helping each other rather than helping outsiders. Because they knew, at least some of them knew, who the guy was. But they'd rather not give up the name of a murderer than actually help the police. So even though, like, most of these people, you know, are perfectly normal, innocent people, that's just sort of the culture that they had was to not talk. So that helps, again, this is not a mafia murder specifically, but it helps the mafia. Because anytime they're doing something, if the people that they're doing it to aren't going to bother turning them in, uh, it's not going to solve the problem. Was it very common, do you think, for them to have that attitude with, and rather than helping law enforcement, they're going to help each other? You know, and, and it, it varies culture to culture. Um, a lot of it is just sort of, uh, and not to be too generic, too stereotypical, but with the Sicilian culture, I mean, there's just generations of not trusting authority. So it's not like it's it's specifically the American police. It's just they've been getting a bad deal for generations. So they're kind of like, well, we know how to take care of our own. Um, and other cultures, like the previous residents were the Irish, and the Irish, very different. Um, as soon as they were able to, they got involved in local government. I mean, a lot of the early police officers were Irish. So they had a completely different point of view on that. Once they were accepted as being American, they wanted everything they could do to be American. So it's the cultures vary. All right. So after a little bit of uh, walking around, talking to people, the inspector uh, in charge of the case, man named Otto Reamer, he told the newspapers that he knew beyond a doubt the identity of the man who did the shooting. Uh, he didn't name the man publicly at this time, but he said, I know for a fact. And Reamer, to his credit, had developed a reputation for honesty. Um, he didn't believe in lying to criminals to get a confession. There's, you know, there's a thing called the third degree where you kind of like badger somebody into confessing. And there's another trick that police still use to this day where if you've got two people, you put them in two separate rooms 
and you'll say, hey, your, your buddy already told me everything. You should probably tell me something or otherwise he's going to get away and you're going to get blamed for it. And Reamer went on record saying, I'm not going to do any of that. I think that's dishonest and that makes me as bad as the crooks. Um, whether you agree with that or not, that was his position. So if he said that he knew who it was, he probably knew who it was. The suspect was described as 35 years old, very dark, with a pointed black mustache. There were 15 detectives detailed on the case. Every dwelling, barn, tavern, and building was searched from top to bottom. The local newspaper said of the buildings that they were searched that the places have been found swarming with Italians, and the surroundings are crowded with squalor. Nine persons are often found in one room, but the swarthy sons of Italy are as immovable as a sphinx when questions as to the murderer are put to them. Uh, very colorful language in the newspaper. One Italian was heard to remark in broken English that if the police don't get him, he'll be back in Italy within two or three weeks, which is probably true. Uh, if he wasn't going to be arrested, obviously his next best thing was to get out of the country because he's wanted for murder. Uh, the murder caused distrust of Italians. It sort of did not uh, make the Americans trust Italians, even though this was just one bad guy. It, it, you automatically set an example for your people when you're the new people in town. But even the other Italians didn't like it because there was already this divide between the northern Italians and the Sicilians. Like most of us, a Sicilian is an Italian. But originally, they didn't think of themselves that way. The Italians on the mainland were like, oh, Sicilians are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so one Italian businessman said the Sicilians were... Uh, Dagos, they were not real Italians. He said, I'm not ashamed of my native land, but I must confess that I'm not proud of the people in this country who are supposed by most people to be representatives of Italy. These people are not genuine sons of Italy. Sicilians have never become loyal subjects of Italy. They were born of a race of cutthroats and brigands who thrive only on crime and live in a condition of squalor and degradation. Brigandage still prevails to a large extent on the island especially under that large-scale organization known as the Mafia. Petty thieving on the island of Sicily is as common as the dogs in the streets. The Sicilians in this city are a dangerous people. They are treacherous and vindictive. This guy was very strong in his opinion. Was Sicily a place of high crime or anything like that? Or, or was it, you know what, there was just as much going on, probably more going on on the mainland because there were so many more people there. Uh, in Italy, or you know, I don't, I don't want to. Again, I don't want to stereotype and have somebody mad at me. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, the the southern part of Italy, which is uh, both Sicily and the very bottom of the mainland, uh, they were traditionally very poor. In fact, to, today they're still rather poor. So it does sort of lend itself to having more crime because when you're poor, you're you're going to steal, you're going to do what you have to do to get by. So um, I don't know the statistics about whether the violence is stronger in Sicily than in... Truth to what he was saying. Oh, there's yeah. definitely some yeah. truth. I mean, I, this guy... The, the, yeah. <laughs> really is, is pretty vocal about it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, he's not wrong. He's just kind of... You wouldn't normally say it quite that strong. Strongly, right. So it, it only took them a few days, but they did catch the killer. They found him in, of all places, Boston. I don't know <laughs> why, but he was in Boston. Um, he had already, within a few days, found a new job of selling crabs in the street. 
So uh, they, they arrested him, and turns out his name was Antonio Balistrieri, uh, which is interesting because the Balistrieri name is the most notorious name in Milwaukee Mafia history. Now, this is not like a grandfather of the, the later Balistrieri mob guys, but just an interesting coincidence. The first Sicilian murderer in Milwaukee has this Let's name. So, uh, yeah, so already from the very beginning, that's a name like, oh, yeah, when he was arrested, he said, well, you know, I shot him because I was provoked. I didn't do it just because I felt like it, like he was on my case. Uh, he claimed that James Sukup drove by his home, um, reviled him, whatever that means, uh, hit him in the chest with a brick. <laughs> yeah. So enraged, he ran after the wagon and fired four shots at him. Uh, he expressed deep regret when he heard that the man was dead. He claims that he was just shot at him because he had a brick thrown at him. He didn't really intend to kill him. Uh, I don't know that there's any truth that he got a brick thrown at him, but that's his story. Uh, the detective, again, he comes back and talks to the public. He says, we have known for more than a week that he was in Boston. Letters and telegrams passing between himself and his brother furnished the clue. A week ago Wednesday, a lengthy telegram was sent to the Boston police asking for his arrest. His brothers left for San Francisco, but they had that trip in, planned for some time now before the murder, so it wasn't like they were leaving the, the hideout or anything. Within the first 24 hours of being arrested, Balistrieri made three attempts to kill himself. First twisted his large bandana around his neck and then tied the loose end to an iron bar in his jail cell. The bandana was firmly tied. He threw himself forward in a manner that brought his entire weight on the knot around his neck. It knocked him unconscious, but did not kill him. He next tied his suspenders into a noose and successfully hanged himself, but was cut down before he was, before he was dead. He tried a third time. Now his bandanas and his suspenders have been taken away from him. So he tore his shirt into long strips to make a noose. But this was less successful than the first two tries. Uh, the uh, shirt strips were just not strong enough, and they tore further. After the third attempt, uh, he was put in handcuffs and a straitjacket. They decided that, uh, you know, this guy's clearly not going to give up. <laughs> From within prison, because that's some yes. massive detail that you got there, and I would imagine that would come for prison records of it. It's not actually, this was in the newspaper. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh so the third ward Sicilians actually pooled their money to hire a defense attorney for him. So again, you know, they'd rather stand up for somebody who they know is probably a murderer. Uh, so they, they pooled their money to hire a defense attorney who uh, was well known in his day. That was all fine and good, but it, it didn't end up working out. He was found guilty of murder, uh, but it was murder in the second degree. So I guess that's a little bit better. He was sentenced to prison for 20 years, but already by the end of that same year, um, he was ruled insane, and he ended up serving out the remainder of his time at the uh, state asylum in Oshkosh, of all places. Wow. Yeah, right near home. So that was our first uh, murder involving a Sicilian in Milwaukee. So, 18, 1897. So, so this is like right before there's a big influx. There's actually not that many in the area quite yet. Footing in Milwaukee. I would say it really hit about 1903. So, so, so it's... Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it did not take very long for from the Italians coming to for the Mafia to become a thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think already the, the, the few bad apples snuck along from almost day one. 
So. Uh, and, and you said you said that with the the guy that was convicted. I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names. That's okay. But he, you have no record of uh, tying him to one of the ballots. I'll no. let you say the name because yeah, I'm. Curious. No, and actually, uh, so the problem with that is the newspapers were really, really terrible in the early days with spelling and things like that. So in the newspaper, like the way they spelled his name isn't even correct. There's a couple of different spellings of the name, but the one the newspaper used is not one of the normal spellings, so I know that they're wrong. And then um, his prison record no longer exists. Um, it's the way that the state keeps the state prison records, they sort of randomly keep some and they and they trash others. And his wasn't one of the ones that they randomly kept. So the only thing left is the index card. They keep all of the index cards of when people first get uh, logged in. So I, I have a copy of that. But even there, I mean, the spelling is like the best guess of, you know, the guy doing the check-in. So trying to figure out exactly who this guy's parents or brothers and sisters were, it, it's really hard to tell. So I, I don't know where he fits into this, but I don't think he's a direct, you know, he's some kind of cousin, but he's not like a direct relative. Well, there you have it. Do we have anything else for this? No, I think that about covers it. All right. Well, that sums up this week's episode. Hang with us for a new episode coming next week. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, Amazon selling enthusiast. It's Eric here. And if you're tired of the inventory management struggle, I've got a game changer for you. InventoryLab.com. Inventory Lab simplifies e-commerce. Inventory management integrates seamlessly with Amazon and even syncs effortlessly with QuickBooks for hassle-free accounting. Go to Milwaukee Mafia slash IL now because your success deserves efficient inventory management. Happy selling.